This is Future Terms from Teach First, a half-termly panel event looking at the biggest issues facing schools in disadvantaged areas. Don't forget to subscribe to listen back to each event. But for now, enjoy the episode. Good afternoon, good evening. Um, I'm not actually going to start yet because I'm waiting for the attendees to clock in, but um, I'm just saying something so it's not an embarrassing silence. My name is uh, Jim Knight, um, which you can probably tell because you can put your mouse on my screen and see that that's who I am. And I'll introduce everybody else in a second. We just, the attend, I'm just gonna wait for the attendees number to just stop clocking for a bit. Okay. We've been stable for about five or 10 seconds. So I think I think I will start. Um, so a proper good afternoon, early evening, depending on whether you decided you're drinking tea or gin at this point. Um, my name's Jim Knight. I'm uh, a member of the House of Lords. I'm a recovering politician, former schools minister. Um, I work during the day some of the days for tears and do a bunch of other things. I am also a parent. My stepdaughter is a mixed race child in year five um, at the primary school just up the road. Um, and, you know, I'm hugely grateful to Teach First for organising this uh, session and following up a really interesting report uh, called Missing Pages, Increasing Racial Diversity in the Literature that we teach that they published last month to um, a really good and strong response. And it, it showed how much of an issue this is. I mean, I'd have to say, when I was at school a very long time ago, I'm 55, um, probably the only characters of color that I can recall would have been in uh, The Adventure of Huckleberry Finn, Jungle Book and Othello. That's it. That's all I can remember from my childhood. Uh, in terms of literature and I had hoped that things had moved on significantly um, and uh, I think what the report tells us is there's a hell of a long way for us to go. Um, so that's what we're going to explore today and we're going to I think want to not only talk about why it's a problem but also try and touch on how we might solve the problem um, and uh, we've got um, a really good panel to help us to do that. Um, I would warn you that we are recording this session. Uh, so if you don't like that, then you're in the wrong session. Um, but uh, you need to know that. Uh, and it'll be shared with, with future audiences and it's just a way of us capturing what's going on. Um, we, I'll shortly introduce each of the panelists and ask them to give me a, a one sentence uh, description of who they are and, and quite a short sentence, not one of those rambling ones. Um, uh, if you have questions as they crop up through the debate, please post them in the Q&A. Um, and then once we've then had three minutes each from the four panelists, um, we'll then move into questions and make this interactive and uh, fill out the rest of the time up till 5.30 with that sort of more interactive exchange. So um, first of all, let's start with Joanne, who are you? Where'd you come from? 
Uh, and you win the prize for not being take, coming off mute. Oh, somebody had to. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Joanne. I'm from Birmingham. I'm a Teach First School Partnership Lead for the West Midlands Schools. Thank you. Jamila? Hello there. I'm Jamila Boothman. I am an assistant head um, at a school in Tottenham and I am a Teach First Ambassador. Brilliant. Kwame? Hi everyone, yeah, my name's Kwame. Um, I'm from originally from Shrewsbury and uh, I'm an educator for the Black Curriculum. Thank you, and Katie, finally. Hello, my name's Katie and I'm the Head of English Drama and Modern Foreign Languages at Pearson EdXL. And I'm from Cardiff. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely, and yeah, I'm from South East London. I'm currently indeed in Lewisham. So um, let's start with, uh, I think we'll start with you, Joanne, partly because yeah, this has all started with Teach First and, and your report that's come out. So give us, give us a three minute pitch. Right, so Teach First um, brought out a report called Missing Pages. And um, we discovered that young people could go through their secondary school education um, without studying a book written by um, a black or Asian author. Um, Key Stage 3, as we know, has a little bit more flexibility within it. Um, it sets out that you study a Shakespeare, um, that you have to look at a modern text, um, range of poetry, etc. Um, but at the key, at key Stage 4, um, we found that uh, the most popular of the exam boards, there was not a single book by a Black author on the set text literature list. There were two texts by... Um, by other minority writers. Within the anthology, um, children study 15 poems and there were um, two or three poems by writers um, of black origin. Um, and that was it. And talking to teachers, um, talking to young people, they mentioned that they studied literature that had black characters in and often texts like Of Mice and Men would um, be one of the texts that uh, young people said, oh, we've studied a book and, and we've looked at some of the issues around um, segregation, about discrimination, racism, etc. Um, but other than that, they had not read a book at all, which looked at a diverse range of experiences. And more importantly, the text didn't look, um, have any kind of context around the lives that they were living. Um, so they didn't have any frame of reference, they didn't come into contact with any other characters, um, apart from, say, Crooks in Of Mice and Men, as we know, was a stable buck who was um, discriminated against, the uh, use of the N-word within the text, um, so they were able to, you know, look at that and find that actually there was very little relevance. So my view and that of Teach First is that, that this should not be the case, that we should have texts that reflect our society that we live in today. Um, we should be able to study books from a range of authors. And we're not saying that we shouldn't study the classics, that we should bin the classics or um, that they're of no relevance, but let's have a more diverse range of texts for our young people because education prepares our young people for the next stage of life. And if they're not having the opportunity um, to explore different cultures, 
and different experiences that we're not getting them ready for what they need to be able to do in the future. Thank you. Thanks, Joanne. Perfectly to time. I was wondering whether that ticking I could hear in the background was you with a time number. Um, Katie, um, let's come to you. And um, particularly interested in where the exam boards see all of this, because they drive quite a lot of the behaviour in schools. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for having me this afternoon. Like I said, I'm Katie Lewis and I'm the head of English Drama and Languages at Pearson EdXL. Um, I want to talk to you about an experience that I had in December of 2015. So I um, attended a meeting at a school called Forest Academy in East London. And that was in response to a letter that they had sent in um, to all of the exam boards actually about the English literature content, which at that time was a couple of months old. Um, it started that September 2015. And as we all know, that 2015 um, subject criteria had a really canonical, historical, sort of traditionally British flavour with the requirement for the 19th century novel and Shakespeare and romantic poetry and, and that side of things. So the specifications that all of the awarding organisations developed really reflected quite strongly that direction. And in retrospect, they really amped up that element, those particular points of emphasis of the subject criteria, possibly at the expense of other things. Um, but the conversations that I had with the children at the school that day kind of showed up the fact that we had had opportunities available in the content to have embraced more diverse content and those opportunities hadn't been taken up. Um, and therefore we weren't offering our learners the opportunity to kind of see themselves as literary creators or see themselves as literary characters or so a range of different characters that represent a range of different experiences, um, exactly as we were just talking about, rather than just one or two very limited, very kind of um, potentially sort of old fashioned or distant experiences. And the realization of this um, was that the content as it stood at that time um, had was omitting content that should be there that is wrong and it should be corrected. Um, so at Pearson then we started to look at ways in which we could increase that range of diversity and the text that we offered for Key Stage 4 and Key Stage 5. So we started off with coursework study guides that we produced for A-level English literature. So we did a Black British Authors Guide, a British Asian Guide and an LGBTQ plus guide. Um, and those are, are available on the edXL website. They're free, people can access them. There's some really great recommendations in there. But the trouble was that coursework texts are optional and therefore that's not really going far enough. So there was something about the fact of being part of the curriculum being like a set text, which um, kind of imbues a text, rightly or wrongly, with those kind of associations about being canonical, being part of the British literary heritage by kind of placing it in the specification content alongside your Dickenses and your Shakespeare's, it kind of challenges our ideas around what those terms mean and it challenges our concepts of what those kind of texts look like. So over the course of the last two years then, or two years hence, um, we worked about adding two new plays. So The Empress by Tanaka Gupta and Refugee Boy adapted by Lem Cisse. Two new novels, so Mallory Blackman's Boys Don't Cry and Jamila Gavin's Coram Boy, and one new collection of poetry called Belonging to our GCSE English Literature. And those um, new set texts were launched in July of 2019. 
Um, so those texts are on our specification now, um, but I know that there is more that we could and should be doing in terms of content decisions, both now and uh, looking forward to future specifications, and also really significantly supporting teachers to be able to select those texts and deliver them when they want to. Um, you know, having the support and the resources and et cetera in order to make those text selections which are now available. Um, so I'm really looking forward to discussing that with everybody this afternoon and, and thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you, Katie. Um, and Kwame, I'm a huge admirer of what the Black Curriculum has been able to achieve this year in terms of raising awareness on all of this. Where do you see us? Well, you know, give us your reflections. Thank you very much. Um, I guess my reflections, and especially with, with what we, we mentioned, Crooks from a Mice and Men before, and often enough, whether it's in history or whether it's in literature, what we tend to see um, is ethnic minorities kind of that are um, presented in a specific way. And thank you, Katie, when you said that about seeing ourselves as creators of literature. I feel that that's very important, especially in terms of um, whether that's professional, just how you relate with the world after, after schooling. Schooling is very important because it, it embodies people with uh, confidence and, and I guess a place in the world. Um, in terms of my opinion for how, how or what can we provide in the curriculum, absolutely, it's about finding these sources and, and sharing these resources around one another if we can, because I know that time constraints is, is also a huge issue as well. You know, and, and the more we begin to share these these sources of information, the better the, the archive becomes almost. Um, and also, uh, I was I was reading the report before, and one thing that I found really interesting was um, the conversation around poetry and whether poetry will die. And if, if we're looking at, for, from, from my opinion, if we're looking at uh, diversifying uh, the curriculum and, and in doing so diversifying poetry one thing that we do with the black curriculum is we don't just stick to as we we're saying the canon of poetry or how we would understand poetry but we we look at calypso music as a form of poetry and what is it trying to say and if we want to bring that into the more contemporary times as well you know we can look at whether it's spoken word poetry contemporary spoken word poetry um it could be um it could be rap uh, rap and stuff like this. There was a wonderful article that was written by The Guardian about two years ago on Kendrick Lamar, and it was questioning why Kendrick Lamar wasn't uh, awarded a literary award uh, when around the 60s Bob Dylan was. Um, and and it's it's very, very poignant because when we're listening to whether it be rap or or, or poetry or whatever, the, the points that are coming across, they're using all the same uh, literary tools. And I, that's, so that's one thing that I was reflecting on, you know, not just diversifying the, 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 the literature that we're using, but also opening our mind to the different types of literature, especially if we want to increase engagement. And that's one thing um, with the Black curriculum that we're constantly trying to do is bring in more artistic uh, and alternative methods and tying them in with um, the education of the classroom. Brilliant. And I'm a huge fan of George the Poet is a really good example of- Yeah, yeah George the Poet is amazing. In rap, but also clearly a poet. Jamila, um, tell us how does this then play out for you on in the classroom at the chalk face? Um, in terms, uh, and you know, your school is in Tottenham in North London, um, where you've got a good diversity of students coming in wanting to see themselves represented. I assume. Yes, absolutely. I mean. 
this is not about replacing or overhauling the English curriculum. All teachers want to develop the cultural capital of their students. Every single teacher wants their students to leave school with a familiarity of what we would deem, um, you know, legitimate culture. However, this should never undermine or jeopardize the engagement and the empowerment of young people who may not feel or may not be included. Um, an, an inclusive approach to literature or, or exposure to racially diverse texts benefits absolutely everyone. It's not just about empowering black and brown children, although that is very, very important. It's also about showing everybody in the classroom that these things have value. We need for everyone to feel reflected um, in literature and art um, and intellectual achievements. Um, they need to be exposed to them because it needs, we need to reinforce this idea that young people can be whatever they want to be. When you think as a teacher, what do I want my students to know? Well, I want to challenge roles in society um, and education is a perfect tool for doing that. So where it comes to literature, it's important that we're teaching them that actually black people in society, brown people in society are not just footballers and sports people. That's not just what a successful black person looks like. Actually, there are black writers, there are black poets, there are Asian playwrights. And it's about making sure that young people know that. So that when you ask a young person, what do you want to be? They don't feel embarrassed to tell you, well, I wanna write a play. You know, they, 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 they feel able to say those things. Um, the other thing about it is that when you're challenging or changing the narrative in the classroom, you often find that by introducing different texts and different perspectives, you then allow people who maybe wouldn't speak normally to speak. And, you know, I'm, I'm a, I, I, I do use Georgia Poet. I use a number of different artists. One of my most successful lessons of, of, of recent was when I was looking at some um, WizKid um, with some boys who recently just arrived in the country actually and they were flabbergasted because we then started looking at pidgin English. Um, one of the things that is my pet peeve is when people club SEN having special educational needs and EAL together because of course you have students who studying who have English as a second language but they're extremely gifted and the danger when you're studying literature is that because they're so far behind linguistically you might forget oh sorry I've gone dark you might forget that um actually they, they, they have a lot to give. And by just sharing with everybody in the classroom, slang, dialect, the importance of lived experiences, that empowers the students who maybe feel like they don't have any power. And as teachers, we need to make sure that we are doing that. The last person I'm going to mention is John Agard. I absolutely love John Agard as a poet. Um, and, you know, if you think about checking out my history, I think it's just that really, really important reminder that if, if we stick with only one type of literature, then we are in danger of being caught in that Eurocentric view that, you know, Caribbean, Car the Caribbean history began in 1492 when Columbus... Okay discovered the Caribbean, you know, and of course, it, it's a very dangerous um, thing to only teach one perspective. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, so I'm now going to move into uh, questions. We have uh, eight of them being asked over the Q&A uh, so far. Um, 
We're also saying if you want to ask them over Twitter, then um, the wonderful people, um, Emily and Jacob and others who are helping us out from Teach First will capture those and feed them through to me so that I can ask our wonderful panel those questions. So um, keep the questions coming. Whilst, whilst they're coming in and we're sort of making sense of them, um, how much of a problem is it uh, that a lot of the black literature, I guess, that, that I see or, and that I've read captures the African-American experience, not the black British experience? How much is that an issue in terms of uh, this agenda in schools? Um, Kwame, do you want to start with that? Yeah, thank you. Um, I guess, you know, firstly, African-American literature, um, there's, there's some incredible writers and yeah. there is very, very valuable. Um, but I think where the problem stems from is um, not being able to reflect your own uh, experience into that. You know, there, there is specific cultures that come with the African-American experience just as the Black British experience. And so I think as with a different history. So it's it's important to um, to tie in uh, the Black British experience, Black British writers. So you can start with that foundation. And then as you explore out, so one 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 book comes to mind is, is The Lonely Londoners, which is about, um, you know, the Caribbean migration here, which is which is a brilliant book. And that directly is, is tied in with the lived experience of a lot of people here in the UK, as opposed to uh, say in America. So I think it's not so much about filter, again, um, to, to kind of echo what's been said, it's not so much about filtering out other things, but it's about complementing them. And I would say in terms of the importance of it, it would be to begin with the foundation to say that, you know, this is a, a heritage that goes back a long way and um, we're inviting you to contribute to it. Cool. Jamila, anything to add to that? I've just unmuted myself. Um, no, I would, I would completely agree. I, I do think, I mean, I have a huge issue teaching of mice and men. Um, we, we know why, but actually it's not just the use of the N word and the kind of derogatory language. It's also about the fact that students can't really um, draw reference to, you know, this time and place. So I think sometimes if, if the text is set somewhere that's quite far away and you're sometimes dealing with young people who haven't even left the borough, um, it, 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 it's kind of, it, you know, it just, it doesn't have the same effect as, as them feeling reflected within, within what they're learning. Cool. Um, we've had a few questions, uh, essentially about how different stakeholders can be brought into the curriculum design process, students, teachers, parents, even Teach First's own corporate partners. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Joanne? I think what we're doing here is opening up the conversation. Um, we are galvanizing um, support and opinions around um, diversifying the curriculum. Um, we're reaching out to our schools, our teachers, our trainees, our ambassadors. Um, and what we're doing, and I think this was mentioned earlier, is to ensure that um, we are providing practical ways of supporting teachers so they can deliver texts that sometimes that they're not always familiar with. Um, so, for example, um, putting on events where we can share ideas, um, people can bring schemes of work, um, they can start building on resources, um, finding good reference points to support 
um, the delivery of these particular texts. Um, so that's really very important. Um, but in terms of um, wider stakeholders, conversations that we are having with the exam boards, with publishers, um, we all know that there are, yes, there are huge big publishing houses, but there are obviously very small ones as well who um, have a particular remit, our expertise in providing um, texts that cover a multitude of different cultures. So reaching out to those partners to just ensure um, that there's that breadth. And what you mentioned there about um, text being very um, often African-American centric is that by having these discussions, young people can start thinking about the possibilities of themselves being creative, themselves being writers. Um, you know, I, I used to be an English teacher. So when I had opportunities to bring real living, you know, writers that looked like yeah. them into the classroom, um, it was absolutely amazing. Um, so, you know, we were able to invite people like John Agard, um, you know, Lem Sisse into the classroom. Um, we explored texts like Mallory Blackman's Noughts and Crosses um, and how you then turn that into a play script so that they can see the huge industries that are that revolve around creativity. And when they see others being successful and being very involved and very passionate about that work, it takes them out of their frame of reference, you know, which you know, has been said maybe that they haven't even left the borough, that they've never even taken the tube sure. to the Globe Theatre um, and just kind of widen um, their realm of experience and, and helps them to grab opportunities that are there. And you get poets like Roseanne Shire, who was uh, a, a winner of the London Poet Laureate, for Lon Poet Laureate for London, now writing Lemonade with Beyonce and those sorts of role models are just glorious. Um, Katie, what's your reflection on engaging all those different stakeholders? Uh, clearly, you have ways of doing that at Pearson. Yes, and I think that potentially that is an area where there is further work to be done because awarding organisations can tend to be quite conservative with a small c in terms of, you know, the safe... <laughs> The safest option in producing qualification content is to produce content that people have seen before, are familiar with, have the resources and the confidence and the knowledge base to deal with. As a person who was educated in the English education system, English teachers were exposed to the same books that we're now exposing students to. So that knowledge gets recycled. Um, and that's true of those of us who work at exam boards as well, many of whom used to be English teachers. You tend to um, fall back on what's safe and familiar and um, people know what to do with. People know how to get a grade seven with an inspector calls. I've got 300 copies of it in the cupboard. I can't afford to buy 300 more copies. If my teachers are off sick or quarantining and I need to get in a substitute teacher, I know they've read inspector calls. They've probably taught it. If I present them with um, the Empress, Will they have even read the book? Do they know what it is? So there's all kinds of um, reasons that help an awarding organization to retreat into more secure territory. And I think schools perhaps do that too for all of those reasons. So we have a responsibility to broaden the, the base of people who we ask the question to as to what content should be on that qualification. 
we have that broader question that we should have asked and are certainly now asking ourselves, which is what do we want the design of this qualification content to do? What's its function? What do we want it to enable the learners who are studying the Pearson spec or any spec? What do we want them to come out of that thinking about English literature and how they are part of that? So I think if you always ask the same questions, you'll always get the same answers. So it's really important to be part of these conversations asking new questions and challenging ourselves and also to be bolder and braver and also to put our money where our mouth is and to provide people with the support that they need so that they can overcome some of those resourcing and, and nervousness aspects of bringing in something new. And, and sorry, just do you, there aren't that many examples who are in this territory. Do you guys yeah. all talk together and, and about this sort of agenda and see whether or not there's something that you can do at a concerted level? Um, that's it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the awarding organisation um, uh, structure in this country is that awarding organisations compete with one another. We are a competitive commercial industry as part of the kind of education industry. So awarding organisations do um, work together collaboratively on certain things which are um, consistent between boards. So maybe on how much coursework should there be or, or that kind of thing. Not that we often manage to influence always at DFE level, you know, ultimately it's not our, our decision. But on things like specification content, we tend to use that as a basis of com competition. So again, that does sometimes drive conservative choices because thinking back to the more historical, traditional vibe that was going on around English literature content in that sort of 2013, 2014 moment, you know, you're trying to please the DFE, you're trying to please Ofqual, you're trying to please the market, et cetera, et cetera. And that can lead to more conservative and less bold choices. Thank you. That's really insightful. Um, we've had a really interesting question, um, if, which reads, even if there is a more diverse range of options among sect texts, how do we encourage schools to choose them? Do teachers and leaders need more support to feel confident in literature they're less experienced in, which goes to some of the things that Kate was just talking about. Um, uh, Jamila, where do you where do we go with that how do we build the competence to make some of these diverse choices um to be honest i was i was really kind of delighted when joanne was talking about kind of support for teachers and katie talked about it as well and i i do think that that is the key i think it's no secret that there is a teaching crisis because teachers do tend to have a lot on particularly when teachers are training um there's always it, it is that thing of the security the security of what's there and it's not it's not actually about laziness because i know sometimes people do tend to villainize teachers um but actually it's that thing where you so badly want your students to do well that the idea of taking the risk that you would introduce a new book, spend money that the school doesn't have on these new books, and that you then find yourself in this position where the teachers, it's because it's not just one teacher, it's, it's the entire department, will then need to be able and prepared to teach well enough for those students to make that progress. And I do think 
support needs to be there. Um, I also think in terms of the, so you get a copy of the text, anthologies are really helpful, you know, really comprehensive anthologies. Um, but I do think there does need to be a way in which people can plan and share ideas together. You know, I, I did the Teach First programme, so I know what really amazing support looks like, but it's not available for everyone all the time. So it's definitely something that needs to be considered. Joanne, do you, you have you all have some thoughts on supporting teachers to be more competent in this? Yes. Um, so um, when our trainees join us, they um, go through something called a summer institute, which is five weeks. Um, Jamila will remember this. It's a five weeks um, intensive getting you ready for the classroom. Um, so as part of that, um, we have been able to include more around race, ethnicity, diversity, um, opening up those conversations. Um, when our trainees are placed in schools, um, making sure that they find out about the context of the school that they're going to be working in. So that's incredibly important that they um, then have that full understanding of, of the pupils and the communities that are going to be served. And then once they start their training program, um, putting in support. So some of the very things that have been mentioned around um, sourcing texts, um, being able to uh, develop resources, to connect. The thing that's really important and that we found, especially in this virtual time, is that teachers um, want to be able to connect with each other. So building those networks so that people aren't reinventing the wheel. Um, you will find that somebody else has taught a text that you are really keen to be able to deliver and just being able to um, open up and to, you know, swap and um, support each other and just widen um, the range of uh, resources that are available. Um, as Jamila said, people tend to want to just pick something that they can you know, quickly take off the shelf. There's a scheme of work for it. Um, and, and Katie also alluded to this. If you've got a cupboard full of hundreds of, um, of mice and men, let's say, or inspector calls or something like that, um, we know budgets are tight. And so, you know, that is going to be a key concern, but those texts will need to be replaced. There is a rotation of text. So when that time comes along, it will be that they'll have um, as part of their development plans, because we've been having this conversation that they will then be looking to um, buy texts to, to support that diversifying of the curriculum. And, yeah, and Tez, we put together a Black Experiences Hub um, uh, over the well, in the in the weeks after the murder of George Floyd, and um, the traffic was huge, uh, and that bears up that that desire from teachers to be able to to get support and support each other to do this. Um, and the Black Curriculum as a partner in helping us put that lot together. Kwame, do you have any more thoughts on this this key issue of building teacher competence? Yeah, I think. Um... Well, just to echo what everyone else has said, really, I think support, it comes down a, a lot to support. Um, and I think there has to be programs available, you know, uh, whether it's training or whatnot on, whether it be resources or um, pedagogies as well, uh, you know, within the classroom, it's it's one thing diversifying a curriculum. And then it's another thing um, if, if you don't change the structural nature of a, of a school. Um, if, a, if a student feels alienated in the classroom, it's not 
just the introduction of a, uh, a curriculum that's changed that's going to change that alienation you know it's ultimately the environment the school embodies and that's one thing that we try and do with the black curriculum you know as well as doing we do do curriculum consultations and we work alongside schools to kind of um complement their curriculum uh, across across all um across all subjects and the other thing that we do is is we do um intensive teacher training courses where we look at what we talk about is, is racial literacy and how to um, how to be able to speak confidently and comfortably with empathy around the issues of race around the issues of the difference and the similarities that um, people's different racial backgrounds bring and really what that is is just so um, if you're working with a material that maybe you're not confident with hopefully with 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 this with some training behind you you'll you'll be able to um, critically assess the material that's in front of you and also encourage the students to do so as well uh, and there's a few a few things I know um, around uh, various various different topics but um, I think comfortability within the classroom is a is a huge thing you know how comfortable do the teachers feel with the um, with delivering certain topics and and which I guess goes to this this is not a conversation in isolation this is uh, it relates to the whole curriculum and you know how we get changes in the history curriculum how we get changes in other aspects of what we teach and the and how the experience of being a pupil in a in a British school reflects their own experience uh, more widely. Um, we have then uh, a question about the well, we've got a few questions about the importance of starting early. Um, as ever, we've ended up mostly talking about secondary, um, uh, but uh, how much should we also focus on what we teach primary? primary school children. Um, Joanne. I'm not a primary school teacher, however, I am a parent. Um, so I have got um, I have one child who's in still in primary school as well as one in secondary school. And um, there is so much to be said about starting early. Um, so at, at preschool, nursery schools, I actually think that the uh, range of texts is better it's more diverse in that sense um there are so many stories like there's princess grace stories um for example um you will see anansi stories um looking at um traditional um african and caribbean stories so you will find that there's a, a richness there um there's so many of the texts that my daughter would bring home um which exemplifies very very different cultures so it could be um from Asia, um, Africa, the Caribbean, all the experience of being here. Um, and many of the stories have, um, you know, very much replicated our own personal histories. So um, particular texts that looked at the relationship between a child and a grandparent, and the grandparent speaking in, in Jamaican Patois, um, and that being written in the script, the, the beautiful illustrations, um, them weaving in the history of how they migrated and came to this country and sort of joining the generations and kind of you know bringing together um you know that kind of love of um a family that richness is definitely part of that curriculum um at primary school you tend to find that it drops off when you get to secondary um yeah. because of the you know rigidity of the curriculum there's so many subjects um 
and then everything being kind of narrow funneled into doing um, GCSEs. So it is really very key. And I think it's also important at this point to kind of bring in um, the influence of library services, which do fantastic mm -hmm. jobs in terms of storytelling. Um, and not just during Black History Month, but other times of the year too. Um, and um, independent bookshops who again also open up the um, availability of real life authors being in situ, telling stories um, to, um, to young people um, from a range of backgrounds. Really, really powerful work that goes on in the community. Um, but as I say, it, you tend to find as children get older that that becomes less and less. And I would include in that school librarians, yeah. some of whom have been cut through you know, yes. recent years and mm -hmm. keeping those that expertise about literature in schools, I think is, is critical. Uh, Jamila, what, any, anything to add on primary schools? Um, I, I'm also a mum. I have a lovely little seven-year-old um, going on 50. Um, and <laughs> she is, actually, she came home a few months ago quite upset um, because they had had a lesson on the George Floyd murder. And the funny thing is my daughter knows quite a lot about what's going on. It wasn't news to her, but I, and I couldn't quite understand why she was so upset. And I unpicked it with her teacher who was a fantastic teacher, I have to say. Um, but what, what we kind of left that conversation with was I said to her, listen, if you're going to um, teach my child about the burdens of being black mm -hmm. you're also going to have to talk about the joys of being black you're going to have to be celebrating black love black literature black pride um and so what about windrush day um I, I think it's really really important to just remember and again i i feel like i'm kind of making excuses for teachers and i'm not but school is so busy and it what would be fantastic is if somehow whether it's through our local authorities or through through whatever it is we have a calendar that we put together and so we say, actually, it's Eid this month or it's, you know, mm -hmm. it's so important that if we go down that route of, OK, we're going to celebrate this and we're going to we're going to talk about that. We have to make sure that it's equal. We have to make sure yeah. that in trying to include some, we're not then excluding others because equality for some is equality for none. We know that. So yeah. I think primary school is just that perfect opportunity whereby you are able to make sure that that children are having conversations about things that are happening but also really the conversation is about inclusion and celebration of who we are and how we look and how our hair grows and all of those other things as well yeah, yeah. at home with our nine-year-old we had that period of lockdown where we had to lead to the learning here when we did we did a lot um, following the murder of George Floyd, but Coco was also, re she read the whole of the Harry Potter books during that period. And Hermione Granger, as described in the books, if you haven't seen the films, and we wouldn't let Coco see the films until she read the books, has thin, fizzy hair, just like Coco's. There's no reason, and is, is not described in terms of skin color at all. It's such a tragedy that when, then when she watched the films, Hermione's then portrayed as having a white skin, not, not her color skin, but yeah, that's just me being selfish perhaps. Um, uh, I, I, I think there generally are issues about how some casting choices uh, tend to lock in the image of someone, but um, I won't go on about it. Um, next question, um, which I'll start with you, Katie, I think. 
Um, do you think there is willingness within the DfE to change subject criteria to allow greater flexibility and diversity? If not, how do you think this could change? Now that, that person rushing into rugby tackle me off screen that I mentioned earlier <laughs> might, might well make an appearance. Let me see. Um, the DfE is not a monolith, let's say that, and therefore um, uh, the, the, the prevailing opinion in one iteration of a DfE is different from the opinion of another iteration of the DfE. You know, those of us who have been around in education for the past even 10 years or so will have been through, you know, um, a very kind of controlled assessment driven modular GCSE approach, which um, then obviously morphed from um, a more kind of um, exam and coursework approach. And the last iteration did have a requirement in the criteria for something which at that time was called different cultures and traditions, which is where of mice and men and roll of thunder here, my cry and um, uh, to kill a mockingbird were often kind of included on GCSE specifications in that, um, in that iteration. Uh, we then obviously went into the 2015 one, which took us a slightly different turn. Um, and then obviously, as time moves forward, we will go into further iterations. I think that the experience of having added these four new texts onto our specification in 2019, now that took two years of working and researching and refining what those texts could be that would fit through all of the hoops that are required in terms of depth and breadth and content and challenge and accessibility and language level and not too much for a 16 year old audience, not, not enough for a 16 year old audience. And we got those um, signed off by the regulator, which you have to do in 2019. I often wonder if we had tried to put those on the text list in 2014, would those have been signed off at that time? And I wonder, perhaps, I, I mean, it's, it's hard to know whether they would or they wouldn't have, but the prevailing, the prevailing context at that time felt like it was Victorian poetry and Dickens, you know, was, yeah. was the direction. So I do think that that is maybe an indication that things are already changing within the criteria that we've got, which has helped to expand what, you know, the British literary heritage is, what that means and what it could mean. Um, I think that obviously there's been so much attention and so much rightful um, light being shone on some of the emissions in the education system across all subjects that I would be hopeful that there would be an appetite for change. I think we are seeing signs of that. And I also think that we as awarding organisations and as teachers and um, education professionals can influence through, again, researching and bringing different voices, different perspectives, different opinions to bear on the consultation period that goes into finalising subject criteria. I think bringing forward that student voice in a way that has become increasingly more powerful since 2012-13, the value that we place upon the student experience and the student um, commitment to the content and they're really kind of engaging with and driving from a much more kind of grassroots level so i think that's an aspect that hasn't necessarily been um utilized before that could really have a positive influence going forward thank you and Kwame, my guess is that black curriculum has been engaging or trying to engage with the department uh, on this agenda do you have optimism 
Um, yeah, yeah, I do, and I think we do. We definitely have optimism at, at the Black Curriculum. We, we, yeah, we engaged. I think it was from June, um, and it's it's ongoing. But as you said, there's been so much support. You know, um, that's sometimes within within government, within the DfE, and and, and teachers such as yourselves as well, and and um, students and parents. And I think that ultimately, you know, that the hope stems from the fact that. I think we're all slowly walking towards a, a vision, which is to diversify the curriculum. And I, I don't think that that can necessarily be slowed down. You know, I think that it's only, and, and again, as at the Black Curriculum, we think that it's only really a matter of time. You know, it's not, it's it's not, uh, yeah, it's only, it's only really a matter of time. So whether it's in two weeks time or, or next year or three years or four years, we're not too sure yet, but the important thing is that these conversations are taking place. I'm politically biased, but I can't help thinking that until we get a change of schools minister, um, we're gonna struggle, but I would love Nick Gibb to prove me wrong. Um, I would genuinely love him to prove me wrong. Um, let's move on. The International Baccalaureate is increasingly taking a student-centered approach, allowing students to conduct in-depth research of particular topics, including authors. Do you think this approach could bring more ethnic minority representation into the classroom? Um, Joanne. Um, yes, that would be a welcome approach, but again, it would need a strong steer um, from teachers um, in terms of guiding the students. So again, these conversations are going to be valuable so that they are upskilled in terms of having that knowledge to be able to direct the students um, if they wanted to do an extended study project, which is um, uh, something which many exam boards offer. Um, and you can take that up to, um, you know, sort of like a, a almost like an AS, an old school AS level, um, that they would need support to be able to, to do that. Um, and so they, you know, using the brilliant website that, you know, that the Black Curriculum has, for example, um, using all of the test resources, um, being able to uh, tune into lots of these conversations which are being um, had. Um, if you were to go on Twitter, there are lots of people who are amazing experts in this area, being able to connect with them um, and being able to delve into that. So giving students more um, independence, but being able to support them in terms of their reach, research skills is going to be um, the, the thing that's going to make that a really fruitful um, prospect. But the teachers themselves will need to, you know, again, be part of this conversation so they can support young people in whatever individual endeavours they, you know, would like to pursue in terms of research. Thank you. And Jamila, I'm interested in your reaction and, and you could wrap into it an answer to another question, which is about whether we need to do more to mobilise young people and let their voices be heard, which relates to what Joanne was just saying. Well, absolutely. I mean, so I teach English language and English literature. Um, and actually, I think that the two can help one another. I think that if teachers technically show their young people what they should be looking for, um, so, for example, if you're thinking of an inspector course, for example, how does JB Priestley create tension? So you show you show your students what does tension look like? What are these things? What are the devices? And then once you're confident that they have the skills and they understand the things that they're looking for, you then say to them, go and pick a favorite song, go and pick a favorite artist, do what you want, bring it back to me. And you tell me, how does that writer create tension? How does that writer create romance or whatever it is? It's about 
developing their understanding of what is required of them. They need to have a very explicit understanding of what successful responses look like. And actually they can do it with absolutely anything and it would be fantastic and it would empower so many of them. Um, but we just need to make sure that the training is put in place in order to scaffold them towards success in that. Yeah. Great. We are starting to run out of time. I've got I've got one question I'd like each of you to answer um, because I'm hoping we can capture lots of joy in that answer, um, which is one that's coming from Emma, which uh, asks uh, which books, and I would also add, uh, and or poets, would the panel love to see studied in schools? And I'll start with you, Katie. Um, I'm really quite excited about some of the poets that have been added on with the um, belonging collection, not to harp on about that too much. We've got Raymond Antrobus on there, who hopefully people know, who mm -hmm. has got some really brilliant work, which kind of you've got the, the sort of written poetic form, but also that kind of spoken word element, which, as I think Kwame mentioned, is a really brilliant way of engaging people with the kind of concept of poetry and the rhythm and and, um, and all of those side of things. So I think that is a great addition. Um, I was quite keen on getting, on whether we could get Diane Evans um, novels into the curriculum. It was too, um, a little bit too mature um, was the concern potentially for GCSE, but I think perhaps as students move from GCSE into A-level or if people feel that they have a more mature um, group that they're working with, then I think that she has got some, some brilliant um, more recent work that um, that would work really well with with children and also kind of covers the kind of range of different experiences within the kind of British context. Um, I think that, you know, anything which offers people an, uh, a sort of different perspectives on perhaps the Black British experience, for example, we mentioned um, the Lonely Londoners, which is on the uh, on the A-level specifications as being an example of things that offer those sort of different and uniquely British perspectives. Um, so yeah, that would be my suggestions. Lovely. Um, Jamila, you're the next in line. Um, I have, I have um, recommended Carla, I said that I do enjoy, um, I, I do really enjoy teaching natives just because of the demographic of the students who I teach. Um, it's something that does empower them. But I, I, I do have to say, though, I don't like to name just one thing because I think there are so many fantastic texts out there from so many amazing people and we talked a little bit about primary school um, there's a collection the Bella and Logan series um, I know somebody who wrote a book um, called Tales of a London Lass there are just so many things and I just think it's that thing about access you know we forget actually that access to diverse texts is a luxury for so many young people because of um, lack of resources, um, maybe not actually knowing where to access them. And I think if in schools we could find a way of, I know there's never any money in schools, but if we could find a way of just creating exposure to different texts where students can have a look at the cover, they can read the blurb and just something speaks to them and they pick that up and, and run with it. And, I, and, and that's what I'm passionate about, not really just recommending one thing because we're all different. Thank you. Joanne? 
Um, I would echo um, what Jamila said. There's just like, there's so many different texts. Um, there's a huge range, um, but some of the you know ones that I've taught and worked really well, um, Mallory Blackman, any of the Noughts and Crosses series um, has been, you know, worked absolutely fantastically in classroom. Um, poetry by John Agard, Grace Nichols, um, Lem Sisse, um, Benjamin Zephaniah, um, who actually, you know, um, came, comes from the same part of Birmingham that I come from. Um, I love reading Refugee Boy. Um, that a Face, for example, was another of his texts that um, young people always like. And then I know we talked about the fact that some American literature isn't always um, applicable, but, um, you know, texts like, um, well, even, if we were for looking for older children, um, Colour Purple at sixth form, Beloved at sixth form, you know, so the Toni Morrison's um, classics, um, the richness of the discussion that you're able to have um, by studying a text like Beloved is, um, you know, is, is just uncontrollable. It's just amazing. Um, so yeah, any, any of those. Beautiful, thank you. And finally, Kwame. Thank you. Yeah, I think to echo, again to echo all of those uh, recommendations as well, suggestions because they're all wonderful. Um, and uh, I think uh, if it was uh, African American Zora Neale Hurston as like you know a, a central figure in that in that movement um, from the UK again, Akala, um, Jean Binter Breeze, which is uh, as a Jamaican poet, a brilliant poet, and uh, and it would be interesting to see some. Uh, I know that there was there was some classes done around uh, Michael Smith as well, the uh, a poet. Um, I'd say, but ultimately, it would be nice to have, um, a, you know, a, a, an archive full of these, and then and then people can pick and choose according to the classroom or or what the, what the teacher feels comfortable with and everything. That would be the the icing on the cake. Well, maybe we can get all of those into school libraries um, uh, as quickly as possible, so at least people can start to enjoy them, even if uh, we can't get them as set text. Listen, that's been a, a wonderful discussion. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I'm hugely grateful to everyone who's put in questions. I'm sorry I haven't been able to ask all of them. Um, uh, the session's been recorded. Um, it'll be shared by Teach First for people to play back and in particular capture some of those recommendations we got at the end. Um, I'm especially grateful to Kwame, Joanne, Jamila and Katie for uh, giving their time and giving their insight. Um, it's hugely appreciated. And a big thanks to Teach First for organizing all of this and uh, doing the hard work of uh, briefing me and uh, feeding me what to say, um, although they're not to blame for everything that I've said because I, I do have my own mind as well. Um, so thank you all. Uh, it's been a joy. Um, maybe we'll have some further conversation about this at some point uh, relatively soon in the future. Uh, but thanks all for tuning in and we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Future Terms from Teach First. We'll be back soon with another event. To find out more and to attend, visit teachfirst.org.uk forward slash future terms. <laughs>